0: This breakout session with Pete Hughes from KXC was recorded at David's tent 2018. So thank you for the invite. It's it's an absolute treat to be here. I've been coming to David Center for the last few years to support, you know, Rich and Lydia and Danny and Beth and others. So many people that I love dearly are here. Um and I also recognise there's a grace upon this event. Um like as someone that spends a bit of time at conferences, new wine focus and, and other events. Like God calls out these events and they they sort of emerge and God uses them for great things, but they carry something unique. There's something unique about this space. We're do you agree? There's something utterly unique. I regularly get asked, what is it about Davis 10 that has grown from a few hundred to sort of 6,000 plus? Like, what, what is it? What's the magic? And i like, I honestly don't know. The grace of God, the anointing of God, the presence of God, that he just faithfully shows up year in, year out, and people meet with him and their lives are transformed. And that's why it's an absolute joy to be here. And one of the things that I think is special about this place is it's 72 hours where there isn't really much of an agenda There's not really much of a schedule. There's like bands overlapping and and flowing together, but really no one comes with like this kind of like fixed set and this is exactly how we're gonna do it. We're just gonna start worshiping and see what happens and allow the spirit to do his thing. And the spirit when he's given space to do his thing will always do remarkable things. Where the spirit of the Lord is there's freedom and there's a deep sense of freedom. You can hear it in the tent right now and you can feel it in this um, space here too. So it's, it's a joy to be here. And one of the things I wanna do in this workshop, and maybe we'll just create some space for ministry at the back end. Um, I don't count myself as much of a, a prophet, um, but I, I lead a church in King's Cross with my wife, B, and we count it as part of our role. My wife is highly prophetic, but we count it as, as part of our role um, to wed ourselves to the prophets. In Ephesians, it talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The, the prophets see what God is doing and the apostles build towards what God is doing. So you always have to have this marriage of the apostles, the sent ones that are building things, and the prophets that are seeing and sensing what the Spirit is doing. So I spend a good chunk of my time just hanging out with prophetic figures and just asking them lots of questions. What do you sense is happening? What do you see happening? And I think I've learned to, to read the times, if you like, because I've I've, I've spent enough time with prophetic people and, and seen how they begin to look at what's happening in the culture around. Look at what's happening in the church and begin to discern what God's doing. So I just want to share some insights of what I hear multiple prophets saying, not just across the UK, um, but across the world. Obviously, people like Pete Gregg, Mark Sayes, Danielle Strickland, and I could name people after, you know, Pastor... Agu Irukwu from the Redeemed Church of God. Many, many church pastors who are saying the same thing. And what they're saying is that the Spirit's beginning to do a new thing. That forget the things of old. Can you not perceive it? Something new is stirring up. A lot of people are quoting 1 Kings 19. I can hear the sound of a heavy rain. And obviously at an event like this um, under canvas, we don't want to hear the sound of a heavy rain. But prophetically, we know what they're saying. That there's something new stirring. And when there's something new stirring, you've got to get on your knees. You've got to stop. You've got to pause and say, Lord, what is happening? Because I want to be a part of it. This is a moment for humility. It's a moment for intercession to welcome in the new thing that God is doing. So I really want to teach from Joshua 3, verse 5. Um, When Joshua, well, God is speaking through Joshua and Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourself. Get ready, because tomorrow some extraordinary things are about to take place. This is what's so precious about David's tent. It's 72 hours of of consecration. Like this is holy ground, isn't it? I, I, I literally mean this ground we're standing on. Um, The people that that live in the house and own the place. That they are people of prayer. They're people of the Spirit that want this place to be used for kingdom purposes. Um, So many events, wildfires, big church day out, David's tent, meet on this place and it just seems there's something um, God ordained about this space that this is holy time, this is consecrated time. So consecrate yourselves, tomorrow I'm gonna do something extraordinary. And I want you to notice the context of God saying this to to Joshua. Um, He's led the people to the banks of the River Jordan. They can see the promised land across from the river. Um, The backstory's been phenomenal. Moses has led them out of 400 years of slavery. Um, They've had another climactic moment after the Red Sea where they ascend Mount Sinai, they enter into covenant relationship with God. There's been supernatural provision through the journey. And then Moses hands the baton over to Joshua and says, you you are to now lead the people across the Jordan eventually into the promised land. But at this point in the story, they're just parked. They're camped on the banks of the River Jordan. Um, They can see, they can smell, they can taste what is ahead of them, but there's a huge river to cross. And you can understand Joshua feeling this raw sense of excitement of what is to come, but let's just try and imagine the human side of that. And the human side would be that Joshua is aware that one of the greatest leaders in the history of the nation of Israel has led them to this point. Like, this is like David Moyes taking on from Sir Alex Ferguson. Like, like what's just come before is parting of the Red Sea, you know, Mount Sinai, covenant relationship with God. I mean, Moses is described as the one that spoke with God face to face. Like, this is the hero, and he's taking on the leadership after Moses. So he knows what's to come, and that's really exciting. But imagine the insecurity of, like, do I have what it takes? I've seen Moses lead like a mighty warrior. Do I have what it takes? Like, are our best days... Behind us. like Do do I have what's going to be necessary to lead the people, not just into the land, but to overcome the giants in the land so that we can settle in this land and thrive in relationship with God in the land? You can imagine the crisis in confidence, right? Um, And at that point, God speaks to him and says, like, consecrate yourself today because tomorrow I'm going to do something extraordinary. And this is what the prophets, um, I think, are saying right now. Consecrate yourself today that that's the priority of this day this season in the life of the church is to consecrate yourself it's a time of pruning it's a time of preparation and um, to ready ourselves for what is to come consecrate yourself tomorrow i'm going to do something utterly remarkable in other words god is saying to joshua your destiny's hidden in your history your destiny's hidden in your history what's happened before i can do it again It's happened before, I can do it again. What I've done with Moses, extraordinary. Yes, I can do it through you. So be strong and very, very courageous. This is my hope and prayer for this time that we have together, that the seeds of faith would stir within us and be watered by the Spirit. As I begin to share stories from Scripture, but stories of some of the heroes of the last 2,000 years that have been part of revivals and revolutions, that God's used ordinary people to do extraordinary things. As, as they've set themselves apart, consecrated themselves for, for what the Lord wanted to do tomorrow. So your destiny is hidden in your history. So I just want to unpack the backstory so we can really understand the weight of this phrase. Your destiny is hidden in your history. So join with me on this journey through the Exodus narrative. For the two of you that are close enough to see the screen, you can see some of my slides, but you don't need to see them. I'll explain them. So we're going to start. The people are in Egypt for 400 years and the Exodus narrative really begins with the story of the birth of of Moses. So Moses' mum had heard that Pharaoh, who was panicking about the growing population of the Jewish people in his empire, he thought if they grow too big, they could pose a threat to the empire. So he decides to cull the numbers and issues a decree of ethnic cleansing and says every Hebrew boy that is born should immediately be thrown into the River Nile. And then we pick up the story of Moses' mum has a baby and it's a boy and she panics. And let's just try and emotionally engage with the trauma of that. She knows what she has to do. She has to throw this baby into the Nile where it will probably drown. So she puts the baby in a basket. She puts the basket into the River Nile and she cries out, no doubt, God, God rescue the baby. God Rescue the baby. And as we read the story forward, we hear of Pharaoh's daughter who sees this baby in the Nile um, and lifts the basket out of the Nile. And the name Moses literally means rescued from water. It's a cool name, rescued from water. Now I just want to highlight Um, because this is really key to understanding what is to come, the little baby that's rescued from water becomes the man that leads a whole nation to that very same experience. The baby that is rescued from water leads the whole nation of Israel to this experience of being rescued from water. So let's fast forward to the nation of Israel. Moses has led them out of Egypt and then they come up against this ocean. The Egyptian army are chasing them down, trying to bring them back into Egypt so that they can use them as slaves to build the empire. So they've got a massive ocean in front of them and they've got the Egyptian army behind them bearing down on them. They could hear the chariots, the sound of the army coming. And imagine the panic of that moment, like Red Sea, we can hear the army, Red Sea, We can hear the army like, ah! And what Moses does, he raises his staff over the waters and to the heavens. And I think there's probably two perspectives of this moment. There's this perspective of Moses of like, oh Lord, have mercy on us. Like, do something. There is no plan B. Like, rescue us right now. Rescue us, please. And then there's the perspective of God, right? Of like, Moses, we've been here before remember your name, you were rescued from water. I've done it before, I can do it again. Your destiny is hidden in your history." And I hope that faith begins to rise as we realize some of the stuff that God has done in this land, in this country, he can do it again. Our destiny is hidden in our history. So they come out of Egypt. Um, They pass through the waters of the Red Sea, this incredible climactic moment. They then journey through the wilderness. They then have this second climactic moment, which is the giving of the law, the Torah and the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are hugely misunderstood. So let me briefly explain them to you. They're not a pathway to Earn brownie points with God or somehow earn your salvation. God gives the Ten Commandments to an already rescued people, not as a way of rescuing them because they're already rescued. They are free after 400 years of slavery, they are free. So He gives to a free people a set of guidelines of how to enjoy relationship with God, to live in the circle of His blessings. It's like guidelines to human flourishing. So don't kill each other. It's hard for people to really thrive when you kill them. And don't sleep with each other's husbands and wives. It's, it's really hard for communities to, to flourish when there's adultery. And, and don't lie. And don't covet your neighbor's possessions. And every so often honor mum and dad because that really helps. And, and once a week take a Sabbath, a day of rest to enjoy intimacy with God and intimacy with others. And you'll notice the first three are the key ones of the Ten Commandments, which is about safeguarding your relationship with God. If you want to flourish in life, you can only flourish in relationship with God. This is like John 15, Jesus teaching about the vine. If you want to be fruitful, if you want to thrive, you've got to stay in the vine. Safeguard your relationship with God. So the 10 commandments, this entering into covenant relationship with God is God's way of saying, we're going to wed ourselves to one another. It's, It's a marriage of sorts. And God gives them the gift of the Torah as a way of saying, this is going to mark you out as my people so that the world will know what you're like and they'll know what I'm like. So out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness, up the mountain to receive the law. And then you have stories of supernatural provision, like bread falling from heaven to feed and sustain them on the journey. And then eventually you've got this moment where Moses hands the baton over to Joshua and Joshua is going to take them into the promised land. And we're going to explore that in a moment. Pause there. Um, Because I want to tell you how this story provides the backdrop for understanding the story of Jesus and understanding our story. Okay, so so we're entering into this moment. Like, ready yourself, consecrate yourself. Tomorrow, I'm going to do something extraordinary. So if you read Matthew's gospel, his account, his biography of Jesus, Matthew structures his whole gospel around this story, the story of the Exodus. So you pick it up in Matthew chapter 2. You'll probably know the story of the birth of Jesus, that Herod, a little bit like Pharaoh, is freaking out um, and basically issues this decree that Any Hebrew um, boy under the age of two should be put to death. So Mary and Joseph escape to... Yeah, there we go. and We get there in the end. So they escape to Egypt to to make sure that Jesus would be safe. Eventually it's safe to come out of hiding. And they come out of... Egypt. So there we go. So Matthew chapter 2, they come out of Egypt. And follow the story. The next chapter, you'll notice that Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. Turn the page to Matthew chapter 4. He enters into the wilderness, mirroring the 40 years that Israel spent there in the 40 days that Jesus spends there. So anyone reading this text, like around the time of Jesus, hears that he came out of Egypt. He passes through the waters. He enters into the wilderness. And they're thinking, this is ringing bells. I know this story. This is our story. This is the story of the Exodus. Maybe Jesus is fulfilling our story so that we can be free to be the people we were created by God to be and thrive in perfect relationship with God. So out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness, turn the page to Matthew 5 and you have the sermon on the... Sermon on the Mount, notice the language there. A little bit like Moses ascending Mount Sinai to give the law. And the law was a pathway to blessing. Here's how to live in relationship with God so you can thrive. Notice when Jesus ascends the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, how does he begin? He announces blessings. That's what the law was about, a pathway to blessing. And Jesus said, okay, here it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those that mourn. And blessed are the meek, and blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. and blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those that are persecuted on account of me. In other words, I'm announcing blessing to a people that feel like they're separated from God and, and like they're living under a curse, because the Roman regime are ruling over them. I'm announcing that blessing has come. Because I, the lawgiver, am now amongst you. So here's the new pathway to human flourishing. It's not the Torah anymore. It's relationship with me. I'm announcing a new pathway to blessing. Here I am. I am your Messiah. So again, anyone reading this is thinking, Oh my goodness, coming out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness, up the mountain. Like Jesus is fulfilling their story. But it gets even better. If you keep reading through Matthew's gospel, you'll eventually get to the story of the feeding of the, the 5,000, which is supernatural provision, right? It's bread from heaven. Are you picking up on all of these hints? Out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness, up the mountain, supernatural provision. So anyone reading it's thinking, okay, we, we know where this story's heading. Like in in, in the first Exodus, they go from slavery in Egypt towards the promised land. And Jesus is like a second Moses leading a second Exodus, leading us out of sin, out of oppression, out of darkness, overcoming death. He's leading us to a new creation, a new promised land. But how is he going to get us there? Like if we, if we use the language of 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 the story of Joshua how's he going to get us across the river Jordan into the land like he's got us this far how's he going to cross this divide and i tell you what they weren't expecting they weren't expecting crucifixion and they weren't expecting resurrection and they weren't expecting the outpouring of the spirit jesus had prophesied that these things would happen right but they they just weren't ready to hear it so when each of these things happens it's like Oh my goodness, a total, total paradigm shift that Jesus dies a brutal death for the sake of the old created order. He rises to new life, the firstborn of the new created order. He pours out his spirit so the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead would be alive and at work within us. And this is like the moment of Moses handing on the baton to Joshua and Jesus now hands the baton on to his followers and says, it's your turn now. Like, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to finish what I've started. And when I finish what I've started, I'll, I'll have made all things new. I'll have restored everything to how it was meant to be in the Garden of Eden. And there'll be no sin, no sickness, no suffering. There'll be no death. There'll be no grief, no crying, no pain. I'm going to come back and finish what I started. But in the meantime, I'm wanting you to be the witnesses to the resurrection and agents of the kingdom of God in the world. And and this is where we join the story. Like Jesus is saying to us, I'm I'm handing you the baton now and I'm filling you with my spirit, the spirit of the resurrection, the spirit of Jesus. Um, Go and be my hands and feet in the world. I love what Jesus said in John 14. He's talking about um, the fact that he's going to go and ascend to be with the Father and that another counsellor is going to be given to them. So he's prophesying about the outpouring of the Spirit and he says this, he says, Those who believe in me, not only will they do what I've been doing, they will do even greater things. How? The context is because Jesus is saying, I am giving you the Spirit to enable you to do the greater stuff. Um, this is how Luke talks about it. And and I love this language, this understanding of handing on the baton. Um, So Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. You've got Luke's gospel, and then you've got the book of Acts. So it's Luke part one, and then Luke part two. And in Luke part two, which is the story of the early church, this is how Luke begins his, his book. He says, in my former book, that's the gospel account, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So book number one is the story of Jesus. The implication is saying this book, book part two, is the story of what Jesus continued to do through his hands and feet at the local church. This is stories of ordinary men and women empowered by the spirit of God, continuing the ministry of Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, extending the kingdom of God in the world. That's the ministry that we've been entrusted with. Don't you think that's just utterly, utterly remarkable that we've been drawn into that story? So I want to go back to the story of Joshua. I I, I want you to imagine that we're on the edge of the Jordan. We can see and sense what is to come. A lot of these prophetic words. Ready yourself. I'm about to do something remarkable. I can hear the sound of the heavy rain. Like I can see a cloud the size of a fist. Something's about to happen. This is what the prophets are saying. So I want to imagine that we're joining Joshua. We've heard of what's to come, but how do we get ready in the here and now for that? So if you've got a Bible, let's read from Joshua chapter 3, verse 15 to 17. And this is just the most unbelievable story of taking new land. And this is what we need in in the British Isles right now, right? We need a move of God, for God to come and, and breathe fresh life in this land. So... Verse 15, chapter 3 of Joshua. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. Um, The point here is that this river is uncrossable at flood season. Those details are in there just to highlight that they cannot, humanly speaking, cross the river. They're going to need another miracle. It happened at the Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea. They're going to need God to do it again. Um, so that's what happens the people crossed over opposite Jericho the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground and again let's try and emotionally engage in the story like we read it like facts but imagine being part of this Jewish contingent you've just been through trauma you've been out of Egypt you're journeying through the wilderness and then God does a repeat miracle he, he parts the river Jordan and you're crossing through and dry land and there would have been high fives and fist bumps and chest bumps and they would have been celebrating oh my goodness God is all powerful nothing can stand in his way and Joshua says to them, I, I don't want you to ever forget this moment. So we're going to collect some stones from the middle of the River Jordan. And when everyone's crossed to the other side, we're going to assemble these stones and form an altar so that whenever we pass by that lump of stones, we'll remember, look at what God did for us. He liberated us and he led us into this land in which we could thrive. So this is what it says um, in chapter 4, verse 21. And Joshua said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean, tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you'd crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he'd done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we'd crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so you might always fear the Lord your God. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Just want you to notice that language. This is the story of what the giants in the land, the Canaanites, the Amorites, when they hear the story of the Jordan being parted, these giants, their hearts melt in fear like wax. They literally fall apart. In other words, the taking of the land, the fall of Jericho, all of the other phenomenal stories that we don't have time to really look at, all of that stuff was inevitable once the river had been parted. Because everyone heard, if nothing can stand in the way of this Yahweh God, then we're goners. And we need to know that as we look at some of the obstacles in the culture right now, some of the challenges that we face in our communities, in our workplaces, we need to know that this stuff's inevitable. A move of God is inevitable, not because of what we're like, but because of what God is like. So then they get to the other side of the Jordan and there's a second moment of consecration. Um, And I'm not gonna read the story and I'm certainly not gonna show images on the screen because I don't think you'd appreciate that. but I want to make a point about why would this be an opportune time for, um, for circumcision? Like, I don't know if there's ever a really good time for circumcision, but why would this be a good time for, for circumcision? Like, humanly speaking, it's crazy. I want you to realise just how stupid this is. They're about to go into battle against um, the citizens of Jericho. So strategically, you don't weaken your army when you're about to send them into a battle, right? Right. You don't send your fighting men into battle. And just before they go into battle, you cut off their foreskins and weaken them. Why would God do that? And the simple answer is God would rather have his army consecrated than strong. He'd rather have his army weak and dependent than strong. And we've got to hear this stuff. and Because one of the things I'm really passionate about is, is cultural renewal. I want to see, we lead this church in central London and we have this vision of raising up disciples that infect every sphere of culture with the values of the kingdom of God. Um, people that have a vision for the renewal of the fashion industry, the music industry, um, law and business and politics and education and the third sector and the list goes on. We want to send out people that renew the culture around them um, and I've read a fair bit around this theme of cultural renewal, God on a mission to make all things new and I feel utterly committed excited to that vision but I hear a lot of people basically saying we need to raise up people that that rise to the top of that industry like lawyers and incredible influence and people who rise up the sphere of politics so that they're governing and carrying significant leadership weight and rise up in the media industry and rise up and dot 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 and all of that excites me it really excites me um but it's a very human understanding of how culture is shaped because when you read the scriptures, God says, okay, what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna weaken the army and send them into battle. I'm I'm gonna take foolish things and use them to shame the wise. And I'm gonna take weak things and I'm gonna shame the strong. Um, here's how we're gonna see culture renewed, by getting on our knees and crying out for a move of God. That, that is my conviction right now, having spent eight years in a global city, working really hard to invest in leaders and raise up disciples with a vision for, for cultural renewal, and I'll remain committed to that. Um, but the conviction I have right now is, is we need to get on our knees and cry out for another move of God, another great awakening. And it therefore encourages me um, that we don't have to be strong enough. We don't have to be impressive enough to shape culture. We have to be dependent enough. So we have the story of circumcision. And then it's followed by another moment of consecration. So let's read this, Joshua 5, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up and asked him, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. What an amazing moment. What a humbling moment, right? You see this mighty warrior. Are you on our side? It does matter because you look very strong. Are you on our side or on our enemy's side? And He's like, neither. In other words, you've completely misunderstood. Like the the equivalent question would be us saying to God, are you on my side? Are you on our side? And God's like, what are you talking about? It's the wrong question. The question is, are you on my side? I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. So stop trying to bend my arm to be on your side. Just drop your plans and, and make a choice. Are you going to be on my side? This is essentially what's happening in the encounter. But as the command of the Lord, uh, Lord's army, I've now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, and he just realised, Oh my goodness! If you're the command of the Lord's army, then like I'll just drop everything. I'm I'm in your side. I I, I want to be in your side. What message does the Lord might have for? Uh, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So the key word, the key phrase here, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. Now I've mentioned this idea that your destiny is hidden in your history. Joshua is panicking that the great days for the nation of Israel were in their past. And God says, don't you get it? He who began a good work will carry on to completion. I've done it before. I can do it again. What was one of the defining moments in the story of the Exodus? One of the defining moments was Moses having an encounter with God at a burning bush. This bush in the middle of the wilderness is being consumed. And Moses goes up to it. He's freaked out. This bush is on fire, which is a very standard thing in the middle of a wilderness, right? That's in burning heat. That's very standard. But this bush isn't being consumed. It's not burning up. So as he approaches, he hears the voice of Yahweh speak to him. And God says, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. In other words, I'm about to do something utterly remarkable. So get on your knees, consecrate yourself, ready yourself for a major move of God. Now, when Joshua hears the angel say the exact same words that were spoken to Moses, to him, Joshua Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Imagine the adrenaline rush at that point. Your heart pounding within you of like, God's about to do something incredible. He said, consecrate yourself tomorrow. I'm going to do something incredible. And then there's a second act of consecration in the circumcision. And now here's another act of consecration. God is about to do something remarkable. These are the times we live in. I honestly believe God's going to do something remarkable. Um, but we've got to ready ourselves. This is holy ground. So let me land-ish um, by mentioning just the, the beginnings of the story of how they take Jericho. Because there's so much to learn from how they take this city of Jericho, the fortified city. Um, two thoughts then. Number one, the way into the city is through the house of the prostitute. If you know the story of how they get into the, the, um, the city of Jericho, um, one of the key moments in the story is they gain access through this house in the city wall of Rahab. The prostitute, this lady that was overlooked, an outcast, that was despised. and God says, you see that lady? I'm going to use that lady. I'm going to take that which is forgotten and I'm going to use them for my kingdom. I'm going to take something foolish and I'm going to use it to shame the wise. Something that's perceived as weak and I'm going to use it to shame the strong. This is how God works. He takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things in them. We've got to get over this idea that we as the church need to be really impressive and use social media to show the world around us how impressive we really are. No, we're not. We are weak and we are broken, but God always chooses the weak and the broken to build his kingdom. So I want to share some stories Um, again, with the hope of building some faith, of phenomenal moves of God that have happened either in this country or elsewhere. And we tend to share the edited highlights, a little bit like Match of the Day, you know, where 90 minutes of football is condensed into three minutes. You just see all the best bits, right? When we share these stories, we just share the best bits. Um, But some of the most powerful bits in the story, no one actually really knows. And they're often the bits that precede The breakthrough moments. Um, So first, I want to tell you about Martin Luther. Now, many of you will know of Martin Luther, the... You know, was one of the pioneering leaders of the Reformation. Last year we celebrated 500 years since that breakthrough moment where he posted his 95 Theses to Wittenberg Door. Um, he was the one that had that breakthrough idea of justification by faith. It was a rediscovery of Paul's teaching that we're not justified by our good deeds, our moral endeavours. We're justified because of what Christ has done for us at the cross. It's through his atoning work that we're saved and can enter into relationship with with God, the God who knows us and and loves us, he had this incredible breakthrough idea that swept through Europe, transformed the landscape of Europe, our whole continent, and then far beyond. Still, much of our culture today, 500 years later, has been shaped because of what happened during the Reformation. Now here's the story that precedes the Reformation, the one that most people don't know about, is that Martin Luther had a breakdown and entered a very, very deep and dark depression. And I know a lot of people are are trying to bang the drum of we need to take mental health very seriously. We need to break the stigma attached to mental health and depression um, and anxiety disorders and dot, dot, dot. Many people think that when they suffer with these disorders, it disqualifies them from being um, available for God to use in powerful ways. And I just want to say that's complete nonsense. Luther was having a mental Breakdown. If you read some of his works from that time, he's wrestling with God. Rescue me from this darkness. Like, rescue me from this pit. Lift me out of the mud and the mire. I cannot cope. I cannot cope. And in the middle of the wrestling, as he's having his breakdown, then he has his breakthrough. This is equivalent to, I'm going to circumcise the army. I'm going to weaken the army because I'd rather they be consecrated than strong. I'd rather they be dependent than strong. And as Luther was wrestling in his depression, found a dependency on Christ, and then the breakthrough came. And I think he was reading the Psalms, actually. um, And this just light entered the darkness. I'm justified by faith. I'm justified by grace. And that one idea swept through a continent and transformed nations. One guy at breaking point, complete, breaking point, becomes dependent on Christ and history is changed. Martin Luther was the one that said famously, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. I don't know if you've ever got to the point where you just feel like, I've got nothing now. I, like I'm, I'm empty. I'm running on fumes right now. And you think that disqualifies you. Well, history would tell you that, that God takes those types of people and does phenomenal things in them. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about revival. Um, The story of the last great awakening in this country and we celebrated 280 years since um, that May event where Wesley, John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed and a revival swept, uh, swept through the British Isles. Let me tell you the story that precedes the revival. Um, John Wesley was on a boat out to um, Georgia. He was gonna do some work as a missionary in the States. And on the boat over to the States, there was a storm, a really bad storm. Um, Everybody was freaking out thinking they were about to die. Um, And there was a group of Moravians on the boat uh, that weren't freaking out. Apparently all the Brits were like, we're gonna die, somebody help us. And the Moravians were very, very chilled out. So Wesley went up to the Moravians and said like, I can't understand it we're potentially about to die and you seem very chilled um, and this is a paraphrase obviously their response is we don't fear death we live in a different story and we live in a story where death isn't the end of the story it's just a gateway into everlasting life so we don't fear death we'll willingly give our lives for the sake of the story of God's kingdom on a move and Wesley was just shaken by that. It was like I've just—I mean, Wesley was a priest at the time, but it was like I've just not encountered that kind of faith. Anyway, Wesley went on to spend two years working as a priest um, in Georgia, and everything went horribly wrong. Wesley, the, the guy that we quote, we celebrate him as a hero of the faith, right? But in that two years, everything went horribly wrong. He ended up escaping. Um, coming back to the UK because two different people had filed lawsuits against him. He didn't think it was safe for him to stay. So he gets on a boat, comes back to the UK, completely discouraged, absolutely deflated, and says to one of his friends, I'm I'm not even sure what the state of my faith is anymore. I'm a priest, right? But I, 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 honestly, I'm questioning everything. And the guy says, do you know what? I think you should go to this prayer meeting. It's led by the Moravians. Ding! Those are the guys on the boat. Um, it's in Aldersgate, central London, and Wesley rocks up to this prayer meeting. And one of the guys at the prayer meeting is reading Luther's commentary on the book of Romans about justification by faith. And as he hears this message of justification by faith, the spirit of God falls in the most phenomenal way. And that's the point where he famously says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And then the stories that flow after that encounter, they are Unbelievable. Like hundreds of thousands of people coming to faith. Like at the time, um, Britain was in an absolute mess. People were just spending their time wasted on gin because the price of gin was so low and people wanted to escape the reality of the time. Um, Absolute low point historically in the culture. Um, The revolutions were sweeping across Europe, the French Revolution, and a lot of historians would say the reasons the revolutions didn't come to the the British Isles because a different revolution take place. And it was the revival, the great awakening. And Wesley was once asked by this young clergyman. Clergyman wanted to know, like, what was it about his ministry that was seeing hundreds of thousands come to faith? Um, And this is what Wesley responded. He said, I catch fire and people come and watch me burn. Like it's not a tactic. It's not a technique. It's not like the way that I preach. I literally spend time in prayer meetings. I consecrate myself. And from a place of brokenness, because I hit low, Having returned from Georgia, from a place of brokenness, I encountered Christ. My life was transformed. I catch fire and people come and watch me burn. Like forget the tactics, all the church growth books that we're devouring. Forget all of that. When we spend time in the presence of Jesus, we catch fire. People will come and watch us burn. Let me tell you the story of another revolution. The story of Martin Luther King. And his fight against the racial discrimination they're experiencing in the States. And again, we celebrate his great sermons. You know, his vision. And and all the amazing things that he stood for. The story that we often don't tell is the breakdown he had before the breakthrough that eventually took place. So I want to read you a story of what happened to him. And just before some of the breakthroughs that that we know so well. And the context for this story is that he's just taken on the leadership of the civil rights movement in the States, and he's beginning to get pushback. He spent time in prison. He's got the Ku Klux Klan wanting to take him out. So tension levels are rising. And this is a story of Martin Luther King. The following night, King, shaken by his first jail experience, sat up in his kitchen wondering if he could take it anymore. Should he resign? It was around midnight. He felt agitated and full of fear. A few minutes before, the phone had rung and it was the KKK. We're tired of you and your mess now. If you want out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. King sat staring at an untouched cup of coffee, tried to think of a way out a way to quietly surrender leadership and resume the serene life of scholarship he had planned for. In the next room lay his wife Coretta, already asleep, along with their newborn daughter Yolanda. Here is how King remembers it in a sermon he preached, and I'm quoting now. And I sat at that table thinking about the little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted and loyal wife who was over there asleep. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. I was weak. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I'll never forget it. I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause That we represent is right, but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now, I'm faltering, I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on, he promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone, no, never alone, no, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Three nights later, as promised, a bomb exploded in the front porch of King's home, filling the house with smoke and broken glass, but injuring no one. King took it calmly, saying, my religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. And we know the story that that follows. An incredible move of God, a revolution. But what precedes the revolution is a man at the brink of a breakdown that encounters Jesus in that place. This is a moment of consecration, of readying himself, because tomorrow the Lord was about to do something unbelievable. Final story then, um, of John Wimber. Um, 20 years ago, passed away, but had an incredible ministry in California. And then in the sort of 80s and 90s, spent a lot of time in the UK. Um, And that was in many ways an incredible season where the Spirit moved in power. And many of the churches that we're a part of experienced this renewal ministry. Like at a time when the church was really struggling numerically, not much life around. He came with this message that what we read of in the Gospels and the book of Acts, that should be the main and the plane of the Christian life. So we should be praying for the sick. We should be casting out demons. We should be commanding um, the darkness to flee and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And suddenly things began to happen. There was an amazing move of God. Thousands of people coming to faith. Signs and wonders in local churches. But the backstory, the bit that doesn't get told that much, was he went through his own breakdown moment. He'd been reading the book of Acts, studying the gospel stories, and realizing that all of the stuff that we read of in the life of Jesus and the ministry of the early church, we should be doing that stuff. So he spent two years praying for the sick, trying to push back demonic oppression where he encountered it, like preaching the message of salvation in Christ. Jesus. like doing the stuff of the kingdom of God and seeing such little fruit. And after two years, he was deeply, deeply discouraged, like a real low point in ministry. And he had this moment with God where he was moaning. Like you say that, that you know, because of what you've done and the spirit work within us, we'll do even greater things Well, we're seeing mm, not much. Like, where are you? And this is what he felt God say to him. And John, I've seen your ministry, but now I'd like to show you mine. Like I, I, I've seen what you can do, like your best teaching, your best prayers of faith. I've seen what you can do now that you're really weak. And this is a moment of consecration where there's desperation and desperation always births faith. Now I'd like to show you what I can do. And what followed that encounter was perhaps the last very significant move of the Spirit in this country. Now, I tell you these stories to make a simple point. He's done it before he can do it again. Do you believe that? Do you absolutely believe that? That he's done it before he can do it again? If you look at each of these stories, they take place at a moment where there's darkness in the culture around them. Like the Reformation, the revival in this country. They're low points historically um, within the nation. And if you look around what's happening in the UK right now, there's, there's chronic anxiety. Like the the, uh, number of people suffering with severe depression and anxiety, it's sky high. We see it in our communities, like knife crime in London, but nationally it's on the rise, like terrifyingly so. We see fragility, we see political fragility, like Brexit negotiations, everyone's panicking. We see it at a global scale with stories of Trump and his interactions with North Korea. um, Like... My my middle son, seven years old, came back from school. This was last term. He says, Daddy, apparently World War III is going to happen. Is that true? You're like, whoa, who's been saying that? But like even in the playground, there's anxiety. Like these crazy leaders in power. I mean, how's this story going to unfold? There's anxiety. There's a darkness. There's a lostness. These are historically the moments where the church is is at a point of weakness, but gets on their knees and cries out, God, we need another move of your spirit. And and we're going to consecrate ourselves. There will be a season of preparation, of pruning, of purification. We're going to get on our knees. Would you move in power once more? And we're, we're seeing the very, very beginnings of it, the rumblings of it. That's why I think the prophets are beginning to say, like, can you hear the sound? Can you see the cloud? It's only the size of a fist, but can you hear the sound of a heavy rain? It's coming. Like it's, it's not a coincidence that um, Archbishop and the, and the Pope club together for this movement of prayer of thy kingdom come, where millions of Catholics and Protestants putting any division aside and saying, we're going to get on our knees and cry out for a move of God in our time. Like it's happening. And it's not one denomination. It's not one church stream. There aren't any celebrities involved. It's a move of God. Our destiny's hidden in our history. Our breakthroughs are preceded by our breakdowns in the presence of God. Um, Let me read you this, Um, a colleague of mine, Emma Heddle. um, She was writing, she's an amazing prophet, but she was writing about what she sensed happening across London, across um, our church because we've been in a, a significant moment of transition, a threshold moment, like standing on the banks of the River Jordan, knowing that you're so close to some significant breakthroughs, and yet it feels like a, a, like an impossible divide. So she started prophesying, and she felt this was beyond just KXC, beyond just London, but this was something that the Spirit was doing far beyond. I want to read you. This is about threshold moments. So maybe just close your eyes, and maybe just try and breathe this in, and let the Spirit ignite faith that this is a moment of real vulnerability, but it's a moment where something's stirring in the waters. She writes this, Threshold moments are equally beautiful and terrifying. They have the capacity to make or break the vision. As you stand on the cusp of everything you've ever dared hope for, you survey the land that now lies before you, your eyes tracing the intricate shapes that settle on the horizon. Too good to imagine. This is what's been stirring for so long. This has been the cry of your heart for years, hidden deep down. But now, here it is, that first glimpse of dream turned reality, within reach, right before your very eyes. So nearly there. And as you stand there, at the threshold of everything you've ever dared dream about, with that cocktail of excitement and fear rising in equal measure, that other voice kicks in, the one that gently tells you to take a step back from the threshold. It whispers to you that passing through the door will have its costs. It's too good to be true. Or even worse, what lies in front of you is all a mirage and you'd be foolish to walk through. It will disappear as soon as you enter. It's better to survey the land from the doorway, to distance yourself from it just in case. To stand at the threshold just watching, it's better to quietly let the dream die now before sacrifices are made, bridges are burned, and there's no safe way back. Threshold moments have power. Many see them as the end of a long journey. They finally glimpse what their hearts have longed for, but they stop, exhausted, and find themselves settling in the doorway to all they've hoped for, never actually crossing through and taking hold of it. Tired and exhausted, they find contentment in the reasoning that they've made it this far, that they can see it from a distance. But the truth is that these threshold moments are just the start of the adventure. They're only just the beginning. So step in, take courage, and move forward. You have been called for such a time as this. Holy Spirit, we ask that right now across this tent that you would begin to minister to us in a deep way, that you would begin to put faith within us where fear has been very close, where there's been temptations just to stop at the threshold, stop on the banks of the River Jordan and sack off the dream of entering the promised land. Lord, would you give us faith now? In our brokenness, in our weakness, would you come and ready us for what is to come? Amen. Final thing then, the way into the city is through foolish obedience. The story of actually how they take Jericho, it's crazy. God says to the army, here's how you're going to do it. You're not going to need weapons. You're going to march around it once um, in prayer and worship. And they're like, really? We've been trained for warfare. We're feeling a little bit weak because we were circumcised, but we've been trained to fight. And God says, yeah, you won't need weapons. So day one, they just march around and they sing and they pray. And just imagine how humiliating that would have been for people trained to fight. They just, that that is, but that's the foolish things, right? That shame the wise. It's the weak things that shame the strong. And on day two, God says, you know, yesterday I enjoyed that. Did you enjoy it? No, but I, I really enjoyed it. Let's do it again. And day three, God says, yeah, let's do it again. Day four, let's do it again. Day five, do it again. Day six, do it again. Day seven, God says, let's just spice things up a little bit. Like, I want you to do that seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, raise a shout. Um, And as you raise a shout, I'm going to move. And this is what happens. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. Incredible, hey? Incredible. They raise a shout of, of worship, of intercession. The kind of shout that we regularly hear in the tent. And the walls came down and something phenomenal took place. And they entered the promised land in weakness. In weakness. Um, I'll land with one final story. Um, some of you might know this story, but um, in March, first of March, actually, we did a, a live recording. We, Our songwriters had been writing some worship songs for, for months to really articulate God's faithfulness to us as a community. So there's stories that are really precious to us. But one of the, the songs um, written by Rich and Lydia Decas, is called With Me. And it shares the story of, of Lydia tragically losing her brother, David, in a car crash. Um, and it's a story about choosing to worship in the midst of grief. And we decided that we wanted to do that song on the live album. So that song and ten other new songs we'd prepared. We'd been in, um, been so fortunate to get Jeremy Edwardson, one of the leading producers of Jesus Culture, um, to come and. You know, record and engineer and produce the live album. We were super, super pumped and we'd been dreaming that this would be a moment of breakthrough in the life of our church. We'd had some real challenges but we felt like God was stirring something. Faith levels were high and the idea is we'd take these 10 songs and there'd be weapons um, and we'd use these songs as a way of saying, God would you come? And as we raise a shout, would the walls that stand in opposition to the kingdom of God in King's Cross, would the walls come tumbling down? Would there be a move of God in King's Cross where people's lives are turned around where they experience salvation, people trapped in cycles of poverty We were lifted from that, Lord come and do your thing so we were pretty excited um, and then the Saturday before the Thursday happened something just horrific took place um, something hugely traumatic in that these two guys from Redding, California um, got on a plane with another friend called John, so three of them on the plane Jeremy Edwardson, the main producer his sidekick Andrew Jackson and this other guy John Osborne And on the plane, they were doing what you do when you're just getting ready for a trip. They're eating horrible plane food. They're watching substandard movies but enjoying it because there's nothing else to do on a plane. Um, And as they're watching stuff, Andrew Jackson, 29 years old, begins to tell John, the friend who's actually a a doctor. He said, "I, I don't feel good just feel some chest pain. It doesn't feel right. So John did some things, some tests and thought this isn't actually good. So he informed the pilot, said that we've got this guy, I think he's having some chest pains. Um, But the chest pains began to deteriorate. So John told the pilot, we need to get this plane down. Um, They were getting fairly close to Heathrow. So, the pilot manages to sort of like get the plane down really fast. Um, They get Andrew onto a wheelchair, they wheel him down the aisle, and as he's getting off the plane, ambulance ready waiting for them at Heathrow, he goes into cardiac arrest. Um, And John and others get around and they start working on his body immediately. Um, at this point, I was out ice skating with my kids, and I get a phone call from Tom Eccleshaw, our worship pastor, basically saying, You need to get to the hospital. Andrew Jackson's literally just had a heart attack. It's touch and go whether we'll make it. Can you just drop everything and come and join us? So I bomb across London. I arrive there um, where Tom and Sarah Eccleshaw, um, John Osborne and Jeremy Edwardson, and some other guys that they knew had gathered from other churches nearby in London to pray. So we were standing outside the operating theater, like contending for a miracle, contending for a miracle. And eventually um, the surgeon comes out, one of the leading heart surgeons in the country, comes out and basically says, like, we've done everything. We, we have done everything to rescue this guy. Um, you need to come and say goodbye. So essentially we said, look, before we say goodbye, we want to pray over him. You know, so we gather round and I hadn't met Andrew in person. So the first time I meet him is as I'm laying hands on this guy that's either dying or dead, asking God for a miracle, that his kingdom would come in the here and now. And after 10 minutes of like praying our heart out, um, we just knew that he'd gone, gone to be with Jesus. So we commended his body into the hands of his saviour and we drove home that night, like completely shattered. Completely devastated. Jeremy Eberton, the producer, he lost his best friend. Like got on a plane, excited about this recording project. And then within a day was living an absolute nightmare. So we take him home. The next day we meet up for breakfast and we say, look, you need to go home. You need to go back to Redding, California. Like it's just a recording. Like it really doesn't matter that much. Go home and be with your family. And He said, he said I want a day to think about that. So at the end of the day, he phoned us and said, look, I've thought about it. I want to stay. Like Andrew's life, like he gave his life to producing worship music. Like many of the songs that we sing will have been recorded by Andrew in this studio in in Redding, California. So he said, look, I, I want to honor his life as a worshiper by finishing his final project. I want to go ahead. So we decided that we were going to go ahead, but it wasn't with strength and excitement of like, come on, we've got these 10 songs. We limped into this evening at this nightclub in King's Cross called Scala. And we started with a few songs of worship. Actually, this song, we started with a song that you can hear, All Things New. Um, and then we gave a tribute to Andrew's life. And then we carried on the worship. And honestly, it felt like more that we were worshipping with tears. Um, just everything, totally broken. I, I was a completely spent force, totally broken by what happened that week. And in the middle of that time of worship, <clears throat> I felt God say to me, are you going to raise up that shout? You know, from the Joshua story, where you ask the kingdom of God to come down and the walls that stand in opposition to the kingdom come tumbling down, are you going to raise up a shout? And my honest answer was no. Of course we're not. We've got nothing left in us. Like All of that energy, any sense of hype, <clears throat> All of that gone. So no, we we don't have it within us. And it was almost like I felt God saying, now's the perfect time for it. Now's the perfect time for it. Almost like the people of Israel that spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, totally exhausted camping. Camping sucks, right? We all agree. Camping sucks. Some of you are only doing it for 72 hours. Yeah, but camping sucks. They spent 40 years. Like just feeding off manna and quail in the wilderness. Like an adventure and yet exhausting at the same time. So when they get to Jericho, they're depleted and they've been circumcised and they're weak. And it's at that point they raise a shout. No sense of triumphalism. Like we can do this. Look at us. You know, we've got this one. No, we are exhausted. We're spent. A little bit like Martin Luther before his breakthrough. A little bit like John Wesley returning from Georgia. A little bit like Martin Luther King. A little bit like John Wimber. Absolutely broken. Yet in their brokenness saying, God, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to raise a shout. So I felt like I was saying, you should raise a shout. So I said to the church, okay, we've got nothing in us. But let me just tell you the story of how they take Jericho. They were totally broken. And in their brokenness, they raise a shout. So I just want to play you and we'll land with this um, a two minute clip of our church in brokenness and humility, raising a shout, asking God and his kingdom to break him. So we're going to sing this middle eight one more time and let's use this song as a prayer as we cry out to God for his kingdom to come, his will to be done here in this amazing city in the heart of King's Cross. And at the end of the middle eight, we're going to raise an almighty shout. We want the heavens to hear it. We want the people of King's Cross to hear it. And as we shout out to our Father in heaven, we're asking that the walls that stand in opposition to God's kingdom here in King's Cross, that these walls would come tumbling down, that the King of glory would come in. So let's begin to lift our voices as we pray, lift our voices as we sing, and when the time is right, we're going to raise a mighty shout. Are you ready? Lift up your hands Oh scholar and it's something I'll never forget that the roar of the broken releases the rule of heaven it's the roar of the broken that releases the rule of heaven that we don't have to be impressive enough to shape culture we don't have to be strong enough But if we consecrate ourselves, God can do extraordinary things amongst us. So this is the message that was given to Joshua. And I believe this is the message for us at David's tent. This is a message to us as the church right now in this context, this cultural moment we find ourselves in. Get yourself ready. Tomorrow I'm gonna do something remarkable. Consecrate yourself today because tomorrow I'm gonna do amazing things amongst you. I know I've slightly overrun, so let's just do one minute. As we pray, you might want to hold out your hands, simple posture of receiving. So Lord, we say, not in a spirit of triumphalism, not because we think that we've got what it takes because we don't, but we're asking that you would come and do something remarkable in our time. We don't want to have to look back at history to find stories of moves of God that can only be explained through an outpouring of the Spirit. Not celebrity leaders or impressive people, but unexplainable things that only could be attributed to a living God who's on the move. We don't want to read the history books. We want to see it in the here and now. We are hungry to be caught up in a move of God. So Lord, we humble ourselves. We ask even for the rest of the time that we have here at David's tent, this is holy ground. Do a work in us. Do a work in us. Purify us. Prune and strip back. Prepare us for what is to come. And may faith arise. May faith arise. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about David's Tent and how you can get involved, check out Tent.net.